ask you to turn with me in the Bibles, uh, in uh, either the Bible that you brought today or the one that is in the, uh, in the rack in front of you. That's page 809 in our Pew Bibles. And I want us to read uh, the Beatitudes beginning at verse 3 and then running through uh, verse 12, verse 12 today. We will be considering the, the last of the Beatitudes today. Let us read this um, aloud um, and together, uh, beginning uh, Matthew 5 uh, at verse 3, page 809. Let's read together. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. I suppose what greets us initially as we, uh, as we see this eighth beatitude is that it is followed by a couple of verses of expansion, of extension. We may wonder why that is. I think this beatitude is the most difficult of all. It is certainly uncomfortable, even disturbing. After all, who wants to suffer? And who wants to sign on to a kingdom in which suffering is to be expected? And yet this expansion of this eighth beatitude also is very purposeful and personal. Jesus is preparing us. He's saying, expect this, and I will be with you in the process. Instead of the third person description of blessed are those, it's second person, blessed are you. I'm talking to you. I'm concerned about you. I know what you're going to go through. Hang on there. Hang tight. Following me costs. But it is also short-lived. The suffering that you undergo is brief and momentary. So hang in there. Heaven's worth every bit of the weight. That's the first thing. It's a, it's a difficult beatitude. Jesus is concerned how we're going to receive it, whether we'll be intimidated or encouraged by it. 
The second thing is, though, uh, we remember um, how these Beatitudes um, hold together. Paul, can you, can you uh, put up our tricky little triangle? Um, I'd like you to take a look at this and remember how it is that we've sort of been considering the Beatitudes as a whole to help us even understand, in particular, uh, number eight today. Uh, This I borrowed freely, not the diagram, but the themes I borrowed freely from uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones. But but he's talking on on this side of the triangle, the spirit-shaped heart. That's what's first. Uh, in our Christian discipleship. And, and, and first of all, then, poor of spirit, poverty of spirit. I am destitute spiritually. I have nothing that I am able to bring to God to impress Him in any way. I recognize my weakness, and that doesn't stop when I become a Christian. But I have a response to my weakness. I mourn for it. I don't pout. I don't brood. I mourn over it and go to the Lord Jesus himself. And that enables me to be meek, humble both towards, humble towards God and gentle towards others. How can I be harsh with you in light of what God has done for me? And that leads us to the pinnacle, uh, Lloyd-Jones says, that, uh, that blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Their hearts have been positioned in such a way that now they want to obey God. Amazingly, God satisfies them with what? With what they long for, with righteousness. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for I will satisfy your hearts with the righteousness for which you long. And this is what it looks like. First of all, it looks like mercy. How is it possible, if I have been forgiven my sins, to regard another with resentment? How is that even possible? Spiritually, psychologically, it doesn't doesn't make sense. There is also a purity of heart. I desire, Kierkegaard said, the pure heart desires one thing. I desire the glory of God. I am able, then, to pursue the hard work of being a peacemaker. I do it in a merciful attitude. I do it with clean goals and a desire to make peace in the church of Jesus Christ and to bring others into a peaceful relationship with God. And all of that leads up to beatitude number eight. Every single one of these things, and we could take time to unfold them, but every single one of them will be received by people in the world with disdain and they will persecute you. All of the Beatitudes lead to the persecuted Christian. This isn't, none of this is the way the world works. And and the light blinds their eyes and disgusts them. And the easiest thing to do, the most natural thing to do in the world, is to persecute the people who have brought, who, who display by lifestyle and by heart and by attitude the light of the kingdom to come. Earthbound people despise that kingdom and will take it out on you. The righteous life always creates pushback. 
Uh, yesterday at the men's breakfast, and I'm going to unashamedly give it a plug, it was a wonderful time. He will be on at 7 o'clock next time, but it's a wonderful time, one great time together, around God's Word and with men. Striking, in our discussion of Psalm 118, striking that I got these two comments. As we were talking about living in a world that, that is at times very challenging, um, one of the brothers shared in response to a specific question. He wasn't just leaking on us here. Uh, but he said that there was someone at his work that said at one point, I hate you. And he was able in that moment to pray to the Lord, help me. He's in the midst of getting persecuted. Help me. And he was able to say, because Christ doesn't, didn't hate me, I don't hate you. That was his response to being told, I hate you at work. Because Jesus didn't, doesn't hate me. I can't return your hatred. I won't return your hatred. Another brother, another brother indicated that there was a friend of his in, that lived and worked near him uh, who he had occasion to correct or challenge at one point, and this person has turned into, at least for the time being, an enemy and, 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 has, been, uh, and has been hateful to him. Um, people, people don't like righteousness. People react to righteousness. They always have. So our purpose this morning, as we go through this, is pers- persecution. <laughs> Expect it. Rejoice in it. Because it is so worth it to do so. Expect it. Rejoice in it because it is so worth worth it to do so. Righteousness, as we've said already, provokes persecution. We should expect it. And it has always been that way. Darkness has always hated the light. It was already at the second generation of the human race where there was fratricide, where Cain killed Abel because he was jealous about Abel's uh, offering and God liked it more than he liked Cain's offering. Hatred despisal of the righteous brother and, and, and persecution of the highest order. A murder. You've got a half a dozen people on the war in the world and you kill one of those individuals. Righteous Lot. It may be hard for us to say this when we know the whole story, but Righteous Lot was despised by the literal Sodomites because it was disturbing to his soul where there is darkness and then a Christian nearby, that light penetrates the darkness and it has a backlash. Paul puts it this way in 2 Peter chapter 3, um, all Christians, all who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. I don't really see any loopholes in that verse. All who are truly Christians, they desire to live a godly life, will be persecuted. The darkness hates the exposure of light. I'm going to read a couple of texts from John's Gospel and listen to how Jesus um, is, is described and how, and how people react to him. Light has come into the world and people loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come into the light lest his deeds be exposed. 
if you were of the world, they'd love you. I chose you out of the world, so they hate you. Jesus couldn't make it any more elementary or basic than that. If you were of the world, if you were a partner in the way the world works and thinks and acts, you'd be fine. They'd love you. But I chose you out of that world system, and so they hate you, John 15. Uh, there is a theologian of the era of the Second World War who has, um, uh, we wouldn't agree with everything that he says, but he did know Jesus well enough that he was willing to suffer for him and pay the ultimate price. And I'm talking about Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He resisted the, the Nazis uh, that were taking over his beloved Germany. It cost him imprisonment. It cost him uh, torture. And at the personal command of, of, of uh, Heimlich Himmler, he was executed in the Flossenburg concentration camp just days before the Allies would free it. He said this of suffering. Suffering um, is a badge of true discipleship. Because, quoting Jesus, the disciple is not above his master. If our master suffers, we must as well. And he noted, he noted that for Martin Luther, um, suffering was one of the marks of the true church. Now, in our Reformed tradition, we are used to saying that the marks of the church are three. It is the true preaching of God's word. Uh, it is the correct administration of sacraments. And it is discipline according to the word of God. Those are the marks, and how important what that was at the time of the Reformation to distinguish between what is a false church and what is a true church. But Martin Luther, noticing these themes in the Gospels, which we've just said about, there is another mark of the church, and that is the mark of, of suffering, of persecution. We're waiting for glory, we put it this way, but this is the church militant. And we're, we're waiting for the church triumphant to come in all its power and beauty. That is at, the, at Christ's return. But as we are in this church militant, it is a suffering community. So, what can you expect? What can you expect? Kids, I want to talk to you for a few moments, and I want to tell you a story. I want to tell you a story about a missionary who I remember coming to my church growing up. You will not have the opportunity to meet this person in your lifetime. I did. I was very glad to meet uh, Bruce Hunt uh, and, and his family. And he wrote a book that you can read about this story. It's called For a Testimony. I want to summarize that story for you. Just before uh, World War II, um, Korea was ruled by Japan. Korea was taken over by the Empire of Japan. And, and the Japanese sought to stamp out, get rid of all of the Christians in Korea. They were requiring what they called shrine worship. That is, a particular kind of worship that, that elevates and, and adores the, the Emperor of Japan. They were forcing the Koreans whom they had conquered to worship the emperor of Japan. Many did better than dying. Bruce Hunt did not. 
the, the government of Korea, imagine, imagine the government of Korea um, commanded the General Assembly of the Korean Presbyterian Church. Are you following me? The government over here commanded the church over here to require emperor worship. Bruce, uh, Bruce Hunt said no. Many others said no with him and ended up in jail. And so he was in jail for a while. Uh, he was barely fed. He, he had barely any clothing. He had to sleep on a, on a concrete floor with one blanket, sub-zero temperature, 45 days of that. Just about killed him. They said to him, all you have to do is deny your testimony. He writes a book later for a testimony. This is what I'll put up with for a testimony to the Lord Jesus Christ. He was finally released. Listen to this date carefully. He was finally released on the 4th of December, 1941. You hear what's going on? He was released on, the, on December 4th, uh, 1941. Uh, he was ordered departed. He was on his way, packing up his things and getting ready to leave the country when the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor on the 7th, a day that will live in infamy and a day that cost Bruce Hunt, Bruce Hunt free exit out of the country back to jail. He was weak, again, nearly starved, and he spent six months following that 45 days, six months there in prison. All because he wouldn't deny Jesus. How can we, as, as missionaries, call on our Korean people to be faithful to the Lord and not join them? Um, and, 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 and we ourselves some, somehow escape and, and, and pursue, uh, pursue exit from the country. He was going to stay there. He was going to suffer with them and did it for a testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was released uh, six months later and did return to, the, to this country. He wasn't the only one. There was Anna Strickwerda. She was one of our nurses in, in Eritrea. Uh, she was shot and killed at the same episode in which Debbie Dortzbach, pregnant, five months pregnant, was, was also spirited out and taken up into the hills of, of that country, finally released unharmed. This is your history, kids. Bruce Hunt is your history. Anna Strickwerda is your history. Debbie Dortzbach is your history. They're your older brothers and sisters, two of them with the Lord. The question comes to us is, will our government require us to obey men rather than God? That's really the question on the table in our culture today. Will we be required to obey the rules of this land, which are in some cases kind of crazy, or obey God? The Constitution, of course, protects, in the, in the First Amendment, protects the free, what is the phrase, free exercise of religion? And that sounds wonderful, doesn't it? It's great. We, have the, we are guaranteed the free exercise of religion. 
However, it is even being interpreted, including by one former president, it is being interpreted and, and restated as the free exercise of worship. The government can't, it can't keep you from worship. You can come to your houses of worship and you can worship in any way your conscience leads you to do so. But that's not the same thing as free exercise of religion. Religion is what we do as worshiping communities. It is the outcome of what we do as a worshiping body of people of how we function in the world. It matters how we function in the world. We're following, following the Lord. And so questions that, that, um, questions that come to our mind as we think about religion requires faithfulness outside the church. Do you hear that? This is simple, not very difficult. But it's important to keep in mind in this day and age. Will refusal to accept and participate in same-sex marriages cause the imprisonment of pastors and the shuttering of churches. Will it? Will preaching against homosexuality be outlawed as hate speech? If I'm not mistaken, that is the case already in Canada. In our own state, and I wish I had had time to, to develop this a little bit more, but it, it, is, it not, is it not against governor directives um, to seek to rescue and protect someone who has been ensnared and deceived by this, this gender confusion and, and to seek to, to care for that individual and, and bring him or her back to a safe place? That is, I believe, in this state, forbidden. Verse, verse 11 in our text, this, this is already happening in our private conversations, our personal societal interactions. Blessed are you when others revile you. This, you, are, you will be reviled for believing in traditional Christian, oh, let's put it, let's use a different word, in, in godly morality, morality that reflects the purpose for which people were made as image bearers of God. As we fulfill our purpose in his world for his glory, there is a purpose to sex. Both the identity as a person and the exercise of that of the of the activity. There's a purpose for that, a, a God-given purpose. Blessed are you, but you will be reviled if you believe that and hold that. You will be persecuted and, and uttered all kinds of evil against you falsely on account of this, on account of believing and following the Lord Jesus Christ. You will be subject to name-calling. Let's not discuss the particulars. Let's just call names. Let's call it hate speech so that we don't have to defend ourselves, defend the view. Let's call it bigotry. Let's call it homophobic, which is, do you understand the problem with that? That means it's a mental disorder to not support homosexuality. Homophobic. You're afraid of, of simply other people acting out in accordance with who they are as people. That's a disorder, the world says. 
This is the world in which we live. For so they persecuted the prophets that were before you. <laughs> Expect persecution. And then Jesus tells us, gives us some really wonderful encouragement. Re- uh, rejoice, uh, for your reward is huge. Rejoice. Uh, John Scott says, uh, we don't often, often we don't rejoice, and we do, th- we do this instead of rejoicing. We retaliate like an unbeliever. When persecuted, retaliate like an unbeliever. Sulk like a child. Can you see it? Lick our wounds in self-pity like a dog. Just grin and bear it like a stoic, or pretend to like it like a masochist. All of that is what we do instead of following, instead of following the directions of Jesus. And, and this is what gets so difficult, my friends. This is so difficult. The, the call that we have as believers in the face of suffering, the call is to do this, is to rejoice and be happy and you are to be congratulated. That's what, that's what blessed means. You are to be congratulated. So when we suffer, you are to be incre- congratulated. You are to rejoice. You are to be happy. Now, is, we might think Jesus is really overstating things here in a pretty sloppy manner for some rhetorical purpose, which I don't really get. He's got is he, does he really mean this? Well, let's go over to Luke 6 in the Lucan version of the Beatitudes. And this is what Jesus says um, in, in verses 22 and 23, Luke chapter 6. Blessed are you when people hate you. Again, blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day. And Luke says, leap for, leap for joy. <laughs> and behold, uh, your reward, um, for, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did that to um, the prophets. Now the Bible gives us um, many reasons for being Thankful for suffering. It, it's ama- and I'm just going to mention very quickly about six of them. The Bible gives us a, a close to a dozen reasons to be thankful and to rejoice in suffering. Very quickly. It is an evidence of the gift of God's grace. Philippians 1.29, remember, it has been granted to you. That's a gift of grace. That's the head of the bulletin. It's been granted to you for the sake of Christ. You should not only believe in him, but also suffer. Suffering is granted to you. That's a gift of grace. It is also an evidence of the Spirit, 1 Peter 4. It's an evidence that the Spirit of glory rests on you because you are so unlike the world. And so like Jesus, that you will be persecuted. The Spirit rests on you. You, you identify with Jesus as the apostles did in, Luke cha- in Acts chapter 5. They rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for um, his name. They rejoiced at that. Uh, Colossians uh, puts it this way. Um, you are filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body. Now that does not mean that our suffering adds to our salvation, but Christ isn't finished suffering through you because his body still suffers. 
Bruce Hunt mentions another one. The suffering caused the church to grow. They lost some members, but overall the growth in faithfulness leapt forward beyond what it had ever known in any previous year. All kinds of growth occurred in people's faith. And also then, like in Acts, people drawn to the church. But all those things, as amazing as they are, pale in comparison to what Jesus says here. The reason why you are to to hang on in your persecution, you're blessed in in your persecution. Stay with it and rejoice and be glad because your reward in heaven is great. Rejoice. Rejoice in your suffering because the reward in heaven is going to be worth it a thousand times over. Now, when he says your reward in heaven, he is not speaking. He's not saying that you get to heaven because you earned it, that you get some kind of a heaven is your merit badge. That's not what he's saying. But this idea of reward in the scripture goes something like this. A reward is in keeping with the obedience for which you are being being rewarded. Reward is in keeping with your obedience. So in this case, we follow Jesus and we suffer for Jesus. And what do we get? We get Jesus. The reward is the fulfillment of the behavior. Hey, I don't get an award for being married for 47 years. Nobody's walking, knocking on my door and saying, well, I'd like to give you a medal. I, I have seen people want to give Gail a medal, but that's a different question. <laughs> but, but, um, but, it, but, but this is the, but every day I am rewarded for my marriage with my marriage. Do you hear that? I am rewarded with my marriage. So what Jesus is saying here is this coming is so great, it is so beautiful, and it is so amazing that in the words of Paul, this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. I love J.B. Phillips. We've talked about him. His translation is so beautiful in many places. He says this, Little troubles that are really so transitory. You're suffering. I get it. Philip says this. It's little. It's really little. And it's really short. You can live through it. Because something wonderful and beautiful and full and lasting and glorious and magnificent is coming. And look ahead. Swing low, sweet chariot coming for to carry me home. I can see it. It's going to dip down and scoop me out of the field. There is little pain. There there is little pain for a huge gain. That's really what he's saying. There's little pain for a huge gain. And this is the logic of, of Hebrews chapter 10. It seems that that people who were identifying as Christians and helping people in prison were being robbed of their goods and possessions and even their homes. If they're identifying with Christ, their homes were were ransacked or or somehow or other uh, taken over by the government or other people, something like that. They lost their homes. this This is what the writer of Hebrews says. They joyfully accepted the plundering of their property. You go home from church today... Your home is in embers. It's a foundation only. 
Are, is that going to be our natural response? <laughs> that we're, we're simply joyfully accepting the burning of our homes. But listen to the logic. Because there's a better home, a permanent home, a substantial home that is awaiting. Don't put your eggs in this basket. The loss of home because you, you, you have a much better home coming. So there's a little pain for huge gain. But then, but then in Luke 21, um, Jesus puts it so strongly that what he's really saying is there, your, your suffering, in fact, is no loss at all. There's some pain. It's brief and it's momentary, but there's no loss at all. Um, you will be delivered up, even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. There are family members who are going to be jailing you. <laughs> you will be hated uh, by all for my name's sake. Verse 18. But, this is, he's describing people that are going to be killed. He says, but not a hair of your head will perish by your endurance you will gain your lives. If you want to save your life, you need to be willing to lose it. But that's how all the Beatitudes work. So as we conclude here, um, do you suffer for Jesus' sake? Are you made fun of for Jesus' sake? Are you ridiculed for Jesus' sake? Do you suffer at all for Jesus' sake? I hope you are. And if you've not experienced suffering, you need to ask the question, am I truly a believer? Uh, kids, um, whether you attend school uh, at, at a brick-and-mortar state-run state and, and, uh, institution or your own home or learn or wherever it is, um, you don't... You get you get criticized and mocked if you if you la if you don't laugh at, at dirty jokes if you don't laugh at disgusting humor at work or at school you you'll get a little bit of suffering if you don't go along with respect uh, with, with disrespect you'll probably get you'll probably get a little bit of heat I was with a friend I won't tell you where or when I was with a friend. And a, a joke was made about another, by another friend about a hurricane that was named, that had the same name as his wife, and it made something about, some comment about there was a hurricane in their house, too. And I can remember, I can remember finding that to be rather insulting. And I did not smile. I did not, did make no sense of, of, of approbation of that comment. And one of the guys that was with me said to me later, I noticed you didn't smile. That's right. I didn't smile. Sometimes people appreciate it when you stand up for righteousness sake. Other times you get pushback. Uh, if you do suffer for Jesus' sake, um, on the call here is to welcome it and don't complain. Um, if you're not suffering, then you don't belong to him. Um, if you are suffering, 
uh, it could be very well an, an expression of the fact that you do belong to him. And this is what we all need to be careful for, that, that uh, more uh, may be coming in this country in which we, that we love. More may be coming in this country which we love. But what keeps us going? What keeps us strong? And that is every day we look for our real homeland, a city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Let us pray. Father in heaven, how we thank you that you have sent us the Savior, not only to forgive our sins, but to walk with us in suffering. And we pray that you would enable us to live uprightly, identifying with Jesus um, when it is not popular, and to endure suffering, uh, even welcoming it. Uh, because we belong to you. Strengthen us in the name of Jesus. Amen.